Welcome to the Burn Hickory Podcast, where you can listen to our sermons each week. Our mission is to reach everyone around us with the hope of Christ. And our goal is that you'll find a place where you can learn, grow, live, and thrive in a faith family. Now let's get ready to dig into scripture and see what God has for us today. Thanks for joining us from hundreds and hundreds of living rooms around the place. You never know how Georgia weather is going to work out, uh, but thank goodness we can still worship together today. We can still be together today, even when we have this kind of weather. Listen, if you were not able to make it out with us last Wednesday, let me just say this. You missed an incredible time. We had incredible food. We had incredible fellowship. The Bible teaching all over this building from our smallest kids to all of the adult offerings is there. And here's the good news about it. There's still time for you to jump in this week. Well, last week we started a new series here at Burn Hickory called the parables, the parables of Jesus, where what we're doing over these next couple of weeks is that we're walking through a couple of the many parables of Jesus's teaching to the people in and around Nazareth, around Jerusalem, all around in that area. And we said last week, just kind of as a foundation, that parables are these times that Jesus took earthly language and teaching and moments, and he would put an incredibly big truth into earthly terms so that he could communicate it to the people that were around him. We know that. That's kind of where we grew up, thinking that parables are, are earthly stories with these heavenly meanings. But we also said last week that parables also carry with it a little bit of obscurity to where Jesus would teach things in a way that if someone's heart was ready, if it was receptive, if it was softened that they would be able to walk out and hear and receive the truth that he was giving. And last week we looked at a Matthew chapter 13 at this parable of the soils. And we asked ourselves this question of, of what does my heart look like? And, and am I hard hearted? Am I shallow hearted? Is my heart divided? Or is my heart opened in a position to where I'm asking God to give me his truth? Well, look, we're going to continue in the parables this morning. And actually, we're also going to continue into Matthew chapter 13. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and find them. If you need to hit the pause button for a minute to get there, do what you need to do. But Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to be. As you're finding Matthew 13, when I was studying this text this week, I was reminded of a story that really spoke this text in an incredibly real way to me. It actually kind of seared it into my heart and drove it home. In August of 2005, um, if you were around then, if you were watching the news or, or if you were even uh, halfway an adult, you'll remember that Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Katrina swept across the Gulf Coast and hit, um, hit New Orleans and hit the whole region around the, uh, the Gulf down there. In our church here at Burn Hickory, we sent uh, many, many, many teams down to help out in that area. Well, one of the early, early trips, I think it was in, in, in November that we sent, I was a part of and got to lead, and we were in the Gulfport, Mississippi area. And I'm telling you, you, you can't even describe just the, the, the carnage. It looked like an atomic bomb went off in the place. And our job uh, was basically, 
basically we did a lot of tree cutting. Uh, we did a lot of what they would just call gutting out of homes and trying to remove everything out of the house uh, down to the bare wood to see if it could be saved. And, and we were working in an area to where it just didn't seem like anything could even uh, be saved. But one of the particular houses we worked at one day, um, we, were all, we were all kind of using wheelbarrows and bringing everything out of the house. And the lady that owned the house actually showed up that afternoon. Now, this was kind of odd. There wasn't a lot of people around, but she showed up to just kind of examine what the place looked like and what it, what it was kind of going to be like. And, and I remember just kind of taking a break that afternoon with her being there. It was a little bit weird, a little bit awkward. And, and just looking at her and hearing her story and just, she was pouring out of her heart and pouring out of the, the just the, her soul that she had lived in this house for 50 years and all of the memories and all of her kids and grandkids. And it just seemed like at that very moment, she was looking at it like it is all gone now. And then she looked around and she basically proceeded to tell us that the only thing that she had left on this earth possession wise was what she could fit into her Honda, into her small little car and left to go stay with safety in a safety of family before. Well, look, I'm, I'm, kind of a, I'm kind of a question asker. So I remember sitting there with her that afternoon and, and just, just sharing some time together. And, and, I, and I said, well, ma'am, can I ask you a question? She was like, sure, you can, you can ask me whatever you want. And I said, well, how did you know what to take? Out of everything that you own, out of this whole house, how did you know what to take with you? How did you know what to take? How did you know what to leave? And, and what did you take? She said, oh, what did I take? I was like, yeah, what did you take? She said, well, I, I took some family photos and I took our, our family, our old family Bible. She said, I took, uh, I took enough clothes to, to get me by for a, for a couple of weeks and I, I took some heirlooms that had been passed down from family uh, generations. And, and she said, and quite frankly, all else that I took was just the kind of official documentation that said who I am. I said, well, what determined what you took? And, and I'll, I'll never forget what she said to me that, she, that day. She said, she said honey, um, she said, I took the things. Now listen to this. She said, I took the things that I knew I could not replace. She said, I took the things that I knew I could not live without. You know, I learned a principle that day and, and, it, and it just kind of sat into my soul from that point forward. And that principle goes with the parable we're gonna look at this morning. In fact, I want you to write it down or I want you to place it into the app. And here's the principle. The principle is this. The value we place on something is shown by what we will give up for it. Let me say it again. The, the value that we place on something is shown by what we will give up for it. Now you see in the gospel of Matthew and in chapter 13, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He talks about the gospel. You can interchange those. And he talks about it by using that principle right there. 
And, and what Jesus taught in that principle is that, that finding the kingdom of God, finding the gospel, finding, putting Jesus into our lives is like finding something of such great value that if we find it, we are willing to leave everything else behind because we know what we're getting is worth it. So with that being said, let's look at the parable that Jesus gives to explain this principle. Actually, it's two parables. It's two of the shortest ones in the whole Bible. And, and actually, they're, they're, this actually might even be the shortest passage that I've ever preached uh, in, at one time. But, but don't worry, you're going to get a full message out of these two, out of these two verses. Matthew chapter 13. Let's look at these couple verses. It says this in verse 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And in his joy, he went and sold all, his, all that he had and he bought that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, that just means it was priceless, it was very precious. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So I want you to see something here. There are two strikingly, I guess you could call them strikingly similar stories that Jesus gives us. The first story on, on this side, we see that, that Jesus talks about a man that is in a field that, that kind of stumbles randomly upon some treasure. Now, we don't know exactly what it is that this man is doing in the field, right? We don't know if he's just, if he's been hired maybe to plow the field. We don't know if he's just walking through the field and stumbles over over something after it had rained and washed. We don't know. Man, possibly he could have even been digging a grave and, and, and burying somebody there for all that we know. We don't know what he's doing. But what we do know is that he uncovers an incredibly great treasure, which by the way, when I read this, this brings to mind, man, this is one of the dreams I've always had in my whole life. I would love, I would love to discover some kind of treasure. I love painting for gold. I love going to look for gemstones. I love watching the show Gold Rush. In fact, when I was a kid, I even loved going into the backyard, digging, thinking that I was gonna find some kind of fossil or some kind of treasure in my backyard. I even loved the movie National Treasure uh, where, where you, they find underneath the Trinity Chapel of New York, right? They find this incredible treasure or they're at, or they're at Mount Rushmore and they move the rock back with the eagle on it and they find a treasure or they're in, in Philadelphia or Boston at the Old North Church. We all have this lure in our minds about finding a treasure. This is why the old guys, right, walk up and down the beach with, with their metal detectors just all day long trying to find that treasure on the, wheat, on, on the beach, which, by the way, I thought those guys were incredibly, incredible nerds until I read an article about a British guy about five years ago who found over $5 million of treasure, seventh century gold in his neighbor's backyard, right? Who's the nerd now? You see, here's the thing. In, in Jesus's time, finding treasure was, was not that odd of a deal. In fact, if you think about it, it's really logical because there were no banks. There's nowhere you could put your money. So a lot of people 
would find a place on their property or find a place that's out of the way and they would bury their money so nobody could steal it from them. So nobody could take it from them. Or let's just say this, if your town was being invaded, a lot of times in Jesus's day, what they would do is they would go out and bury their treasures so that if they lost and if they were taken captive, they wouldn't have to surrender over all of their monies. And a lot of times people would die after they bury their treasure and no one knew where it was. It would just be lost forever until someone found it. And in fact, if you read a lot about the discovering of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see that part of what they discovered on one of the caves of the Dead Sea Scrolls was a map that identified over 60 families that got together that put the location of where they stashed their monies while they were being invaded by these other, for, other forces. So, so the real point of this is that, that when Jesus started telling this story about a treasure in a field, people began to lean in. They began to realize, man, I know exactly what you're talking about of what this is gonna be. They began to think, man, I may even have money buried somewhere. So they would have listened to this. They would have thought that this was incredibly relevant. Now, when you're reading this first parable about the guy who finds the treasure, you, you, you see real quickly that, that there is a little bit of an ethical dilemma in this, right? It, it seems quite obvious that the guy should be morally obligated to tell the person that owns the field what he finds, but he doesn't, right? In fact, the guy actually acts a little bit shady. He goes in, he reburies the treasure. He goes over to the guy's house and he asks, hey, how much for that useless piece of dirt, that useless field you got? And they, for some way, we don't know if there's any kind of questions or any interactions. Remember, it's just a story. But what we do know is they agreed on a price. They agreed on the terms. The guy went away. He sold everything he has, all that he has ever accumulated, and he buys the field. But I want you to notice in the middle of this, I want you to notice there are three of what I just think are the most important words in this verse. In fact, in this text, and it's this three words. I want, you to, I want you to write them down somewhere. The words are this, in his joy. In his joy. Because I want you to think about why those are just incredibly pivotal words. You see, normally... When you have to give up everything that you own, you're devastated. You're at a loss for words. You're like the lady in Gulfport that was, that was literally crying over the fact that she had lost everything. But this guy that gave up everything that he had did it, what was the three words? In his joy. Do you know why? It's because this guy is gaining, he's gaining something of much more value. He's gaining something that, that when he walks away with what he now possesses, it makes everything that was in his past seem so minuscule, seem so worthless, seem so trivial, or seem so just trite. And Jesus looks at you and he looks at me in this parable and Jesus says this, that's what finding the kingdom of God looks like. That's what it looks like. That's the first parable. The second parable is, is the same point. 
But there's a little bit of distinction in the second parable. You see, the second parable, the guy is not just a blue collar worker that's walking through a field, right? He, he's not. He, the, the, the second guy actually stumbles upon not what he's not looking for, but he finds what he is looking for. He's not a blue collar worker. He's a, mer- he's a merchant. He's a wealthy man. He's not walking through a field. In fact, he's probably spent his whole life searching after the thing in which he is now finding, which side point just for a minute, I want you to notice the first person stumbles upon the gospel. The gospel just invades his life. It just bang, it is there. The second guy, after months and years and years of trying to find it, they find it. I just want you to notice that tension of how the gospel hits our lives. You see, this guy's been a merchant of pearls, a merchant of treasures. He's been a treasure hunter, which by the way, did you know that pearls in the ancient, uh, in, in the ancient times that we're looking at right here, in the ancient world, pearls were the most or one of the most valuable jewels in the ancient world? Why? Because they were hard to find. They were hard to come by. There was no scuba gear or great ships where you could take air down. No, they were incredibly rare. In fact, uh, it's said that Cleopatra's wealth is, was combined into two just massive pearls that in today's monies would be worth about $4 billion. The merchant in the second story makes his living off buying and selling pearls. And in this story, Jesus says he finds the one. He finds the one that has such beauty. It has such just majestic worth to it that what does he do? He sells all of his other pearls. He sells his home. He sells his business. He sells his land. He sells everything he has just to buy this one pearl. So there's two men, right? One's blue collar, one's white collar. One probably has a little, one probably has a lot. One was not looking for treasure, but one was looking for treasure. One was of the common class. One was of the elite class. So Jesus at this point, he has everybody looking at him, the rich people, the poor people, the merchants, as well as just the common farmers. But both guys in this story, listen to me, encounter something that has such value It makes everything in their life worthless in comparison to what they find. You see, Jesus says, this is what it's like to discover the kingdom of God. This is what it's like to embrace the gospel. This, Jesus says, is what it's like to submit our hearts and lives to Jesus. In fact, let me give you a second principle that can wrap all this together. Principle two is this. You see, discovering the true worth of the salvation of Jesus will always result in revaluing in every area of our lives. When we discover exactly what it is that Jesus gives us, what it does and what Jesus offers us, what it does is it makes us reevaluate. It makes us revalue all the other things in our lives. You see, here's the deal. It's not Jesus and salvation on this side and then everything else on this side of us. Jesus says, no, it's my salvation is here and it shadows every other area in our life and I am worth all of it. In fact, I'm worth more of it and I am worth you losing it all 
joyfully. Joyfully. That's the overarching principle and truth of the story. Now, but here's the deal. These two parables do even more than that. These two parables teach us some things about the gospel. They teach us some things about who Jesus is in the gospel. They give us some important reminders about the gospel. And I want to give them to you this morning. And the first one, and these are, these are a little bit, little bit big boy and big girl theology. The first one is this. The gospel is hidden. The gospel is hidden. Now, we don't talk about this a whole lot, but stay with me for a minute because here's what I want you to see. Prior to sin hitting the earth, God in all of his glory, God in all of his communication, God in all of his majesticness, right, was evident to Adam and Eve and to everyone. But because of sin, there has been a wall that has been divided between us and God. And now there is a little bit of obscurity of what the gospel looks like. We saw this last week in the parable that we studied last week that the message of God is only illuminated by the Holy Spirit in our lives that would have us to begin to turn towards God and that our role was to submit to that turning. This means that we're not born with a full knowledge of God. We're not born with a full understanding of God. We're not born having salvation and we don't just automatically receive it from our parents. The Holy Spirit shows us, he speaks it, we soften, we submit, and we give him our life. God's glory in a lot of ways is hidden because of sin that is in our life. You say, well, Matt, how do we know God's glory is hidden? How do we see? What are some examples of it? Well, let me give you a couple examples of how the Bible says the gospel is hidden. Number one, we see it in this, the heavenly glory of Jesus The heavenly glory of Jesus was hidden in his earthly body. It was hidden in his earthly body. So what what does that mean? Think, Think with me on this one. When you think of the God of the universe coming to earth, right? When you think of the God of the universe coming to this earth, what do you think of? You think of like a guy maybe walking down the road and all, always has this halo around him or this shining light around him or maybe he's riding on a majestic unicorn or, or maybe he's, he's walking through the crowds and all everybody's parting or maybe it's like a painting of a Greek God that you studied or maybe it's just you looking at it and it's like a physical specimen of a man, right? Kind of like myself. He's He's walking through the crowds and he's just the incredible physical specimen. But that's not what the Bible says Jesus came looking like, right? Isaiah 53. Watch what it says in verse two. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. What does that mean? 
That means that Jesus, right, the maker of the earth, Jesus, the one that split the land and the ocean, Jesus, the one that created the atom, the one that has given our human brain just the intellect to be able to perceive what is going on. Jesus was born into the messiness of mere humanity in a human body like mine, a human body like yours, into the poorest of poor situations. Think about it. Jesus never led an army never wrote a book, never was elected, never lived in a palace, never sat on an earthly throne, never was given any kind of award. And for those reasons, I just want you to go with me on this, for those reasons, because Jesus hid his glory, there are many people who have missed him. There's many people who have missed him. But that was intentional. It was intentional, Why? Because God doesn't want us to seek Jesus to gain power. God wants us to seek Jesus to fall in love with Jesus and to live out our love for Jesus. You see, here's the deal. If Jesus would have came in full power and full full physical beauty, he would have attracted people to him that just came to him desiring beauty and power. So Jesus, when he came in the flesh, hid his power so that I would and so that you would, so that those people who are pure in heart would seek him and love him. Let me clear this up. Um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Hopefully you've seen that movie. If you've not, today is a great day to do that at home, by the way. Um, Indiana Jones, the last scene, or the, 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 towards the last scene, you've got Indiana Jones, you've got the other archaeologists, they're in this little cave. They have found the cup, right? They are there. And it's now Indiana's dad has been shot. He's about to die. And now they've got to choose which one of the cups, right? Which one of the grails is the one that Jesus had. Well, the first guy went first. He picks the most ornate cup, kind of like this one right here. He picks the most ornate cup that was there. And the guy holds it up and he says, this is the cup of a king. And he remember, he takes the drink and all of a sudden he ages like a hundred years and then he crumbles into dust. And remember the old Knights Templar, he says, he chose poorly or something like that, right? And then it was Indiana Jones's time. He looks at all of the cups and he grabs the cup. He grabs the cup on the bottom, the cup that's old, the cup that was just kind of common, the cup that anybody could have had. And remember what Indiana Jones says? He says, this is the cup of a carpenter. And then he gives it to his dad and his dad drinks it and he comes back and it's saved. Well, normally I wouldn't say Indiana Jones is an incredible theologian, but that's what I'm talking about in the fact that Jesus' beauty, Jesus' glory, it was hidden in an earthly man to show us what it looks like to love him and to walk it out on this earth. It was hidden in that, but also number two, write this one down, the eternal power of the gospel is also hidden in its simplicity. The eternal power of the gospel is hidden in just the simplicity of the gospel. See, the gospel message in itself, it's so simple. 
The gospel message, the words of the gospel message, it is so simple and it comes to us from simple language. It comes to us from the preached word of God that we can either, we can, we can embrace it or, or we can set it aside or we can ignore it. But make no mistake, the simplicity of those words, they have power to give you life. They have power to change you. This is the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew chapter 13. You can read it. This small little seed gives this huge tree after it grows. What does that mean? It means the seed, the small, the simplicity of the word that is put into our life can produce towering fruit. Think about it. One word from God in its simplicity can change eternity. It can change you and it can change me. It can change all of us. One word from his book, one word spoken over your life, it can change you for eternity. One simple word, which if I could sidebar for just a minute and say this, this is why I, or, or this is why this church takes the preaching of God's word so seriously. This is why we do it. This is why we don't have speakers at this church. We have preachers at this church. This is why we don't give talks at this church. We proclaim God's word in this truth. You see, talks can entertain. Talks can kind of enlighten. But it's God's word that saves us. Paul, Apostle Paul compared the preaching of God's word to the moments in his life where he told the lame to rise and to get up and be healed. And I fully believe that when the word of God is proclaimed and when I stand up here and I preach the word of God and the promises of God that if you will just believe them and if you will just submit to them that they can give you the very presence of the eternal father and the power of the eternal father in your life. This is why this church takes the preaching of God's word so seriously and it's why I take the, the better part of my week getting ready for these couple 40-ish minutes every single week that we speak the word of God over each other. It's not about my opinion. It's not about anybody else's opinion. It is about the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ stepping into your life and making a transformation happen. The simple gospel of Jesus can be understood by a six-year-old and save them, but the power of the gospel of Jesus can break down the hard heart of any 58, 59, 60-year-old on this planet. Peter says that even the angels look at it and long for it. So don't say you're bored with the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel is what changes our lives. But the message can be hidden in the simplicity. Keep moving. Number three, the beauty. The beauty of the gospel is hidden in just ordinary believers. The beauty of the gospel is hidden in ordinary believers. Think about it. The instruments of the gospel proclamation. That's you, that's me. We're just ordinary believers. 
Think about the disciples. We did a whole series on it not too long ago. They're just ordinary people. Honestly, I find myself just begging God, God, why don't you save some powerful people? Why don't you save some smart people, some more famous people, some more impressive people, some more athletes or movie stars, just music stars or intellects. But it just seems like that's not how God works a lot of the times in his plan, right? Think about the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians Chapter one, verse 26, when he says this, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. In other words, God is not looking for our great abilities. He's looking for our availability. And most often time, God used the ordinary. He used the ordinary. He said, don't judge God by the sharpness of the people that follow him on this earth. Don't judge God by the style and the put togetherness of his church. Don't judge God by the lack of luster or the many problems in believers' lives. And don't judge God by how not smart your pastor is. God is not interested in you being attracted to him through the beauty of his servants. He's interested in you falling in love with him because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do we see in this parable? The gospel is hidden. The gospel is hidden to those hearts that are hardened. They're selfishly pursuing. The gospel is hidden in the ordinariness and the simplicity. The gospel is hidden in just regular people. But to balance that, I want you to show, I want to show you the number two truth. Number two, Not only is the gospel hidden, but watch this. That's the bad news. The good news is the gospel attracts us. The gospel attracts us with the promise of greater joy and eternal joy. The gospel attracts us. It illuminates us. It draws us with the promise of a greater joy, of eternal joy. Remember the two most important words that we talked about earlier? Remember, I, I gave them to you. I mean, the, the three most important words. Remember the three words were in his joy. Remember we said normally you'll be devastated when you lose everything, yet this man was not devastated. Neither one of these men. They were both filled with joy. Why? Because the value of what they were obtaining outweighs any of the sorrows from what they had to leave behind. That's the gospel. But let me ask you a question. Does that describe your relationship with Jesus? Does your relationship with Jesus, could it have the joyfulness of God as an overarching banner of your relationship with Jesus? Does joy describe your encounter with Jesus? I mean, really, do you see you're surrounding yourself with Jesus like you surrounding yourself with an eternal, joyful treasure that everything else just pales to compare? Do you find yourself, finding yourself just, just totally satisfied in who Jesus is and looking at everything else and saying, man, it's there and it might be okay, but it means nothing compared to that. You see, if most of us were honest, 
Our image of encountering Jesus does not look like us pursuing joy. Many of us would say, my relationship with Jesus really and truly is just like me and this never ending to-do list or me in this massive, I feel guilty about what I don't do or me with this big ball and chain strapped around me and I don't get to do what I wanna do or me submitting to Jesus and now I can no longer have fun and I can no longer do what I wanna do. But man, I gotta do it because I don't want to go to hell. I want Jesus in my life. Can I be honest with you for a minute? If that's your view of the gospel, if that's your view of surrendering to Jesus, you are missing the treasure of Jesus in your life. This parable smashes a deeply ingrained myth in religious people that when you give your life to Jesus, there is no longer joy, there's no longer happiness, there's no longer fun, there's no longer any of that in your life. It shows you how little you understand about Jesus if that's your understanding. Remember, this. God is not upset with you because you want to be happy. He's not. He created happiness. He created joy. Many Christians, man, let me just say it. Many Christians feel like God wants them to walk away from all joy, all happiness, not have any fun. They want them to walk away and just get religious, forsake all joy, and just serve out of a sense of duty. God's goal is not for you to be miserable. It's for you to have joy of the Lord in your life. Here's how you should think about it. God is not upset with you because you want to be happy. He's upset for you because he knows that your happiness and joy will only come through him. He knows that's the only thing that will last. When we say that God is a jealous God, he's not jealous because he's insecure. He just knows that he's the only one that can make our lives truly happy. He knows he's the only one that can bring us true joy. The rest of the things in our lives are just fleeting. In fact, Nehemiah 8, verse 10, Nehemiah says this. He says, go, enjoy the food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy, he says, of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Not the joy in ourself, not the joy in just begrudgingly serving God. Look, the joy of the God that we serve, the joy of the Lord is our strength to obey. The joy of the Lord is the commitment in the mundane times that gets us through them. The joy of the Lord is the only thing that gives us hope and trials. The joy of the Lord attracts us to his presence no matter the earthly cost. It's the eternal joy of the Lord, knowing that we are gonna exchange this earthly body for a heavenly body for an eternity with the king. That's what God is saying. God is saying, here I am. Here is eternity. Here is my presence. Here is it all. And the gospel woos us, draws us to that joy. That's what the parables are teaching us. But here's the third thing the parables are teaching us. Number three, it's that the gospel, it requires us to leave all. The gospel, number three, the gospel requires us 
to leave all else. Now notice something about the parables. Both men, both men in these parables had to leave everything else behind to obtain the prize. That's the requirement. That's the condition. That's the idea behind what the gospel does. The gospel sets itself in front of it and it's so hidden at first, but when it's illuminated, it's so beautiful, it causes us to leave all else behind. You see, many of us, we want the treasure in the field. Many of us, we want that pearl on the table, but we just want it without having to let go of anything. And we think we can have Jesus, but just Jesus not control us. We would rather just be able to say, God, I want you, but I just don't want you to have me. So what do we do? We do the next best thing in life. And that is we don't surrender our hearts to Jesus. We just kind of get good and religious. You see, religious religion in our minds is a way that, that we can really and truly just pay God back a little bit for what he's done for us, right? What do we do in religion? In religion, we see what God requires of us. And then we just do the bare minimum. Minimum, we give the bare minimum, we get involved the bare minimum, and we hope that as we do that, it will be the minimum amount that will keep God away from being just angry at us. Listen, that's not repentance. That's not us surrendering ourselves for the joy of the treasure that's in our life. That's not following Jesus. Remember in these parables, there was no question to their allegiance. There was no pause in their submission. There was no doubt in their commitment. Coming to Jesus or surrendering our hearts to Jesus really and truly means that you might not be sure where Jesus is leading you or how you will have the strength to do it or how the details are gonna work out on the end or how you're gonna have enough to get there. But you do recognize that Jesus is the treasure worth giving up all the knowledge of those things. That's the parable. Let me close with a story. It's from, it's from Randy Alcorn in his book, Treasure Principle. You may have read it. He tells of a story of, of a small little out of the way grave in Cairo, Egypt. Cairo, Egypt. You wouldn't find it unless, really and truly, unless you're looking for it. It's out of the way, it's not notable. It's a small tombstone. And it's a tombstone that identifies the grave of a man by the name of William Borden. William Borden. William Borden was the heir of the Borden Milk Company. Now, the Borden Milk Company, it's still in existence today, but in the 1920s, it was one of the largest companies in the United States. And William was to be the next owner, the next runner, CEO, president, and, and, and guy that, that possessed this company as soon as he graduated college. Well, William graduated from Yale in 1909. In 1909, William, right before he graduated, he surrendered his heart to Jesus. He became a believer. But in, and then as he became that believer, he realized that God was doing something incredible, incredible things in his life. And then he was overwhelmed just by the gospel of Christ, by the love of Christ at one point. And he wrote in the inside flap of his Bible, these two words, no rivals. He wrote those two words. He just wrote the words, no rivals. After graduation, William believed that God was calling him to become a missionary, that God was calling him to 
proclaim the gospel to the Muslim people. He went to his parents, he told them what he was gonna do, that he was turning down the family business, he was turning down the family inheritance, that he knew this was what God wanted him to do. They said that he's gonna have to pick between one or the other, and he just submitted to who God was in his life. His parents looked at him and said, man, you are crazy. That afternoon, he went into his prayer time and he wrote in the front cover of his Bible, right under the words, no rivals. He, I mean, right under the words, no rivals, he wrote the word, no refusals. He wrote the word, no refusals. So he loaded up his two suitcases and he headed off to Egypt to become a missionary. After four months of just incredible ministry, William contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. He died. On a ship that was going towards some medical care, one of the care workers looked at him and knew who he was, knew his family, read part of his story and asked him the question, hey, what do you think now about the decision you made to come here and do this? And William simply said these two words, and I want you to write them down, no regrets, no regrets. And today on his tombstone in Cairo, with a little description of his life and his time with the Muslim people, there's a sentence on his tombstone that literally says this, and may this be the goal of our life, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You see, church, this is the point of the parable. When you realize and understand the value of Christ in the mind and the image and the treasure and what it gives you, it all makes sense. And everything else that we bring up to that point isn't even close to being worth the treasure in the field or the pearl on the table. Let me submit to you today, church, that he is worth it. That he's worth it. It is worth submitting all to follow Jesus. It's worth leaving all to follow Jesus. It's worth saying no rivals, no refusals. And I promise you, if those two things are spoken of your life, there will be a day you look back at your full, full past and say, I have no regrets. Lord Jesus, today, step into this moment of decision, Jesus. And God, as a result of you illuminating our hearts, show us today, Jesus, that you're worth it. Lord Jesus, if there are people that are listening to this message that need to surrender their hearts to you, may they reach out immediately after I say amen on our next steps text and just say these words, honey, Jesus. If there's people that need to commit to your word, to commit to this church, that need to commit to knowing you, let the day be the day they stumble upon the gospel. Or maybe today's the day they find what their heart has been yearning for. And that's you, Jesus. Thank you for church this morning, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Were you inspired? Maybe you've got questions. 
Do you want to know more about Jesus? Then we'd love to hear from and connect with you. So take the next step with us by visiting burnthickory.com next. Again, thanks for listening. And hey, stay tuned by subscribing and stay up to date by downloading the Burnt Hickory app.